0: This is report to Wyoming.
1: I am Chef Leah Burback with Airlooman Native. I used to live in Douglas about oh, eight years ago, or maybe closer to twelve now, and moved back to Casper after living in Denver, going to culinary school, and wanted to come back to this small town feeling. And how long have,
2: has Airlooman Native been around?
1: Airlooman Native is about a year old. Uh, May 17th was our one year. I have a website through eatwyoming.com. So it's just eatwyoming.com backslash heirloom and native. That's all one word, all lowercase. And you can set up a special events consultation, talk to me about prepared meals, or even book a workshop with me to learn something new.
2: And when you walked in, you were telling me today was your prep day. And so you do a lot of meals that people can come pick up and they're easy to just warm i'm assuming all they have to do is warm them up they could freeze them but it's all fresh
1: food so right now i have a partnership with eat wyoming they do a veggie box subscription um, during the winter and right before summer they do every other week people can subscribe to that for a low cost with quite a bit of food and some people find it hard to have time to prepare all those things and so i have this partner subscription that they can sign up for that we can do customized meals based on their needs, how they like to eat, um, allergens or dietary restrictions, especially people with new allergens who don't know how to navigate that. And, And it can be anywhere from prepping the raw ingredients into something that's easy to put together or fully ready to eat meals in whatever size or packaging that works for you. And so I do have a form that everyone fills out and we go through a whole consultation to make sure that the meals we are making is something you will actually eat.
2: So what does a prep day look like for you? Prep
1: day looks like picking up the veggie bags from Eat Wyoming, making sure all the produce gets washed and sorted and then processed, which could mean peeling, chopping, dicing, blanching, any of those things, and then turning those raw ingredients into several different types of meals for people. Some of my clients are diabetic, or one of my clients has a lectin sensitivity, which is one step farther than gluten. It excludes nightshades and legumes as well. And there are some that can be cooked in a certain way to help break that down to make it more easy to process, and some that are not allowed at all. So trying to find a way to make meals that are still approachable that can feed them and the rest of their family as well.
2: And then I wanted to get into the ingredients more. So you're using produce from these veggie subscriptions. Yes. Um, Where else do you outsource?
1: With the veggie subscriptions and with Eat Wyoming, it's not just a box that you can get. Uh, Eat Wyoming is this virtual farmer's market that brings together producers, ranchers, farmers from all across the state. And she Leanne Miller, who runs Eat Wyoming, includes those things in the veggie box subscription. So we have access to things from Jackson, Torrington, Cheyenne, Laramie, Rock Springs, Gillette, Sheridan, and they come to the hub here in Casper every week. So things like Wyoming-grown ancient grains or gluten-free oats or microgreens that we can get any time of year. So using what's actually seasonally available in Wyoming is what heirloom and native is all about.
2: And is it a little easier right now do you have I should say more things coming in right now or is the harvest probably more bountiful in the fall? And then I kind of want to get into what what you're finding that you guys use the most of in the winter when things are a little bit harder to grow?
1: Right now, it's all about greens. Spinach, leaf lettuce, head lettuce, the smaller heads, and then herbs, things like that. Parsley, cilantro, chives. Mushrooms grow year-round. There's several different mushroom growers across the state, either small batch artisan types like lion's mane or oyster mushrooms, or Shoshone has a great mushroom farm with button or Uh, cremini mushrooms. And then there's other things throughout the season that will become more abundant, like tomatoes and peppers and things like that. That takes a longer time to grow. And in Wyoming, we have such a shortened growing season. There's only a very few number of producers that have a four-season greenhouse that can produce those things all year round, especially with the shortened light conditions.
2: Do you can or try to preserve any of these vegetables when you get them in the fall so that you can use them throughout the winter?
1: Yes, um, so canning, pickling, drying, some fermenting, that's mostly in the research and development phase, using a lot of those ingredients that are in abundance, especially in like August and September, and being able to stretch those out into January, February, and March, or even in through May. And so other ingredients that can be used that don't require a lot of preservation are dried beans or even just taking some of these greens that are available right now and drying those so that they can be folded into fresher things later.
2: And are you finding there is quite a bit of inventory around the state? What's been your experience with all the different farmers and ranchers?
1: There is becoming more and more um, every year. I've been involved with the farmers markets and the other groups across the state over the last several years, and it's, it's amazing how much more has come up just in the past couple of years. And I think part of that was the transition that we saw post-pandemic, seeing what that actually looked like for the distribution Which is the thing that really brought me to start my own business, was seeing how terrible the food distribution system is, especially for us out here in the middle of nowhere, and being able to access fresh foods that aren't just in a box or a can on the shelf and hopefully made it here on some sort of a truck.
2: This kind of leads me to think about the Food Freedom Act. I was just kind of Googling it after you'd mentioned it. I'd never heard of that before. How does that facilitate farmers markets and people being able to sell things they grow and raise themselves?
1: So the Food Freedom Act is something that is outside the standard health code. Um, And it is still being refined and tweaked, but it is allowing for people, farmers, producers, ranchers, to sell things directly to the consumers without having to be inspected. Consumers are supposed to be notified that these things are being uninspected, made in a home kitchen, things like that. Um, And so that can include things like raw milk, eggs, some cheeses, uh, but they have to be notified in some fashion so that the consumer has the ultimate choice of yes or no, am I going to buy this? Gotcha.
2: Okay. And then how does that work in tandem with other regulations if you did want to sell on a larger scale, like something you are doing?
1: What I help do is create a space for some of these things to be value-added products, So taking things like the fresh cut microgreens, where all they can do at the farm is cut them to sell them under the Food Freedom Act, what I can do is toss them with a salad or put them with other prepared items so that they actually have some sort of function or purpose. Um, Same thing for, say, red onions is a good example. You can pull those out of the ground. Some people are allowed to let the tops, the greens dry off, and then sell them after they break those off. Or some have a kitchen, a prep kitchen that they can cut the tops off and sell them without the tops. What I can do is actually go through and cut those and pickle them and create a pickled red onion that's ready to eat or put on top of something else. So helping to bridge that gap between unprocessed raw ingredients that not everyone may know how to deal with to something that's ready to eat or at least ready to put with something else.
2: And then to your point about seeing a more prevalent amount of people doing their own gardening and raising animals, do you think that's trendy? I mean, you touched on the pandemic maybe being a factor, but do you feel like it's just more people moving in, which I just wonder if this homesteading thing is starting to kind of...
1: Yeah, honestly, it's because it's coming back. We have forgotten as a society that these things don't just appear out of a jar that they're actually being made somewhere and that you can make some of these things by hand and that is where my name for my business actually comes from heirloom and native is for heirloom skills and native ingredients things that are from here or used to be from here some of the things that tribes used to use a long time ago that are being brought back because of this homesteading trend, I guess. And the heirloom skills, the things that you can actually use to turn those into something that can sit on your shelf or go on your table year round, like turning okra into not just frozen okra, but a preserved product that can then go on top of your gumbo whenever you're ready.
2: This is like where your science background, I feel like, really comes to light. And so for you, science is a big part of this.
1: So I've been cooking for a long time with my grandma in the kitchen, she would always pull up the little step stool and I'd help her cook. And that just seemed like you know, something kind of fun that we did. And when I was getting ready to graduate high school, I really wanted to be a chemical engineer because I love the science behind it. I love the reactions. I love seeing what one plus one equals two. There's so much that goes into those chemical reactions. And I loved all of the content, but the social interactions within that kind of a field just weren't, weren't the kind of community that I was looking for. I, I felt like I was missing out or being put into a windowless lab for too long. And so to escape that, I would cook dinner or food of some kind for my friends that were doing their homework. And I went, well, if I can do this to escape, why can't I do this all the time? And the more I learned, the more I worked within culinary arts, the more I realized that I am still a chemical engineer. I just get to eat my results and then share them with other people.
2: And you probably easily could have been an ecologist, too, if you'd gone that route. So it's sort of like now you're blending your passions in a way that suits you much better, which I'm very excited. We're going to go and check out some local flora and fauna and I will be getting educated, which is a large part of what you do as well. So
0: one of my favorite things about her is she's really the perfect combination of arts and science and everything that she's taught me. She's a very good educator and we became friends through all of the things going on in the river. And one of those activities was a program where we did kids yoga, story time, and then exploring nature on the North Platte. And so I wanted to find, you know, I have a lot of interest in that, but Leah has a lot more uh, history and, and uh, schooling with that particular uh, subject. So she would come down, and I'd like Leah teach him about all the native plants and the invasive plants on the river, um, teach him about the bugs, and teach him about the river currents, and like she was... Her and uh, Donna and hoffman and a few other people um, came in that were you know really knowledgeable and would gather with these kids and the kids would have just the best time so they got to do yoga for their mind body and spirit and then they got education through outdoor learning activities and then we would have you know books just story time like you'd have in school and the combination was really powerful and
1: And what other avenues do you um, have for education I work with the yoga on the labyrinth, like Elliot said, but I also do some classes with Casper College with the Ollie and community ed program. And then I teach private workshops through Air Native that you can see on my website or even just reach out to me to schedule one for your family or just you and your loved one. It can be as flexible as you'd like it to be. And so I teach cooking obviously different levels of cooking. I just taught a sous vide class all about brunch. We cooked steaks and poached eggs and hollandaise and then learned how to blend the seasonal ingredients with that and what that looked like. And then we teach foraging. So foraging to me comes from growing up with my mom being in the forest service and learning all about rangeland management and identifying the native plants and what's good for the ecosystem between the rancher, the cattle, and the wildlife. That also applies to us as people. Our food is not just at some farm or even just in the grocery store. It's right outside. We walk by it all the time. There are things that are edible or medicinal and also poisonous, which I make sure to point out. And so it's nice to go out and open people's eyes to see more. That's what's already out there.
2: I'm thinking currants. No. <laughs> what? Well, do you work with currants? Yeah. Okay. What kind of local like fruits do we have?
1: Uh, currants, choke cherries, thimbleberries. There's quite a few others. Sumac is one that people don't often see. Man, there's hundreds. I can't even list them all off right now, but.
2: Things we don't normally recognize as food, but it is perfectly edible. I do think it's really cool that you're able to teach people about things that our culture once knew about, but just kind of we just lost over time. So what about, okay, you said fermenting. Do you make beer and wines?
1: I have made a couple of different beers in my time. My most, I guess the right word is explosive. (laughs) Variety was a milk stout where you actually use lactose sugar to help ferment it, and then add a little bit to bottle ferment. And I got a little heavy-handed on the bottle fermenting portion and didn't just pop tops but broke glass. And So that was always a good learning experience.
2: (laughs) It's all just Um, an experiment then. Oh, yeah.
1: And since then, I don't do quite as much beer or wine because there's so many good craft breweries and wineries and cideries and everything, especially coming up here in Casper right now. But... I do like to make my own kombucha. Yeah, tell me
2: more about that because it's so expensive. I need to learn how to make it.
1: It is, but it is a a labor of love. It's akin to a sourdough starter where you have a living culture, a thing that you have to feed, that you have to monitor all the time. And the one that I brew is a June tea, J-U-N, which is green tea and honey based rather than black tea and sugar, which is the traditional kombucha. Hmm. And the starter for a kombucha is called a SCOBY, which is an acronym for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. And they work together to eat through the tannic acid and sugars in the tea that you create and then let out CO2 and a little bit of alcohol and build this cell—oh, excuse me—cellulose tower that they live in together. And so it's a full— chemical reaction and alcoholic fermentation that you have to go through and then monitor how those things are living together. Awesome. Do you sell this? I do not. That is something I will be working on as far as a HACCP plan. I want to make sure that we're doing everything to make sure that everyone is safe. And so that will be in the works probably a couple of years down the road.
2: Okay. Yeah. I don't know if we have any local kombucha right now.
1: Um, there's quite a few people like artisans that make it at home. There's a couple places up in Sheridan at the Freedom Foods Market that make it and sell it. There's a local, well, not really local, regional, Rowdy Mermaid is out of Colorado and they have quite a few good ones. So
2: I like the name Rowdy Mermaid. Yeah, <laughs> that's cute. I'll have to look that up. Okay.
1: Yeah. So there's a few getting started, but we're still, we're still new to that in Wyoming. We're just starting to welcome things like that.
2: And how have you seen the interconnectedness or the network of different people selling their own foods? Um, How is that working in
1: Casper? It's working really well. I feel like because Wyoming is spaced so far apart, it's, it's hard to feel connected as a whole state. And we see a lot of that, especially in the winter when we can't even get halfway across town, let alone, you know, to the next town over 50 to 100 miles away. So it is nice to see, especially through Eat Wyoming, I've done some delivery driving with them going up to Jackson and seeing how much more people enjoy the local produce and how places like Slow Food and the Tetons are really bringing that together and making a space for people to gather. Um, Other places that I really appreciate are the local farmers markets, the Master Gardeners, Uh, There's a few other small ones that pop up, even here in Casper, that people can bring any of their things to. And the more we support them, the more they can produce more and actually make enough to sustain their cost of living and feed their families.
2: Right. And some people might shy away from, oh, why can I, you know, why would I pay that much money when I can get it cheaper from a larger distributor, Um, as in Walmart, Sam's Club, but... Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's, I definitely could make a case for either. So it's hard to say people have budgets, but I feel like there is a lot of value in buying locally for many reasons.
1: There is. um, The first reason for me, the most important one is nutrition, because the foods that we're getting that have been shipped thousands of miles across the country have to be picked before they're completely ready and then are sometimes ripened in a warehouse to be finished by the time they get to us. And the nutrients haven't completed. They haven't set themselves in those foods yet. The The best example is tomatoes. If you've had a fresh tomato right off the vine, it tastes completely different than the one that comes out of the store, especially in the middle of January. Mm. Okay. That's not
0: a tomato.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Nutrition's a big one,
2: and then of course supporting, you know, local businesses, and that's always good too to see our neighbors flourish. And so it's like a little tax for that. But the more that people do it, maybe that'll help see some of the price come down. But again, you don't want to rob your neighbors either, so it's tenuous. I am so excited for our local farmer's markets. What's your vision for your business? Are we getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Or are you happy right now the way it is?
1: I would like to take it slow. I don't want to jump in and lose the quality that I'm building. The point of heirloom and native is to stick to those two things that are our namesake. So not growing so big that I'm buying out of season. Seasonality is a huge thing. I'm not going to do... A catering that requires fresh tomatoes in February. They're not ready, and if there are some, they've been greenhouse grown, and so there will be limited quantities. So following what's truly available at the time and then building menus to reflect that and not doing so much so that I have to sacrifice those morals just to make that extra buck.
2: I'm going to guess that beef is a popular menu item, but when I think Native in Wyoming, I always think of bison. Are you able to get bison meat from local suppliers?
1: There are a few. Um, I need to make some better networking connections with um, some bison ranchers out there. Uh, but that is a huge thing that people ask for, especially mm-hmm. people from out of state that have never had that experience. Um, and so I think that's something that will come along a little bit more as we develop this local food system is that it will become more available
2: And then game, too. I'm thinking elk. Or I had students, um, when I was a teacher at MSU, there were some students who made this argument for bringing more bison ranches back because they are native. There's a lot of counter arguments against that, but they had some really good points. They're hardier. They survive. The winter's better. Their calves are less susceptible to bear and wolf attacks. They eat native plants. You don't have to make as much hay, they're better at foraging native plants, and then they fertilize the earth practical ways. But I also understand practicality. And
1: And I do find that even just the, the cattle ranchers are making some of those switches. There are specific breeds of cattle that do better at higher elevations or produce a different type of meat with different forage. And so even places like Wyoming Cowboy Cuts out of, I think it's Riverton, they have specific breeds of cattle that they leave in specific areas for that time of year. And they're grass-fed, grass-finished or grass-fed, grain-finished. And so there are ranchers that are willing to change what we have always done to move into the future, to become more self-sustainable and become a better part of the ecosystem within Wyoming. And I know a major consideration with buffalo or other wild game is that there is a tribal history with those. and so some of the buffalo should be left to the tribal rights. There's a conservation but also a sacred ritual, or I guess ritual is not the right word. Um, just a sacred heir to the buffalo that they should have some that can roam free. And so there's there's all those things to consider. It's not just, well, this is, you know what the government subsidy would say, or this is what, you know the rancher does that works the best. There are so many different variables, and each rancher has to consider those on their own.
2: Let's talk about the humble dandelion. (laughs) Do you have thoughts on this
1: plant? Yeah. Dandelions are probably the most, well, not the most, one of the most hated plants, especially in your lawn, I know. But most people don't know that you can eat the entire plant. The roots, the leaves, the stems, even the yellow flowers— you could eat the white flowers, but they're a little fuzzy. I've made shortbread cookies out of the yellow flowers. I make pesto or salads out of the greens. And then dandelion roots can be used as either a coffee substitute or they used to be used to help stretch coffee to make it last a little bit longer because it would take so long for coffee to get to us out here in the Wild West. So interesting. Okay. there's... Other medicinal properties that come with that too. Is
2: there anything else hiding in plain sight that maybe people just that would surprise them?
1: Um, Yes there's quite a few really good ones and one of the ones that the kids in the labyrinth liked the best was nature's band-aid. It's called plantain not to be confused with the banana relative but uh, it's a small leaf that usually hides actually in our lawns. There's a ton of it in the grass that you just don't see. It's low to the ground, but it has very good qualities for your skin and helps soothe irritations or rashes, but it can also be eaten just like spinach. And it's just this little unassuming round leaf with parallel veins.
0: Tell them about your little mix. Like, so one of the things, because I like to go outside on my grass and your feet are very absorbent. And so anything you're walking on, you're taking that in. and And so with all the, you know, Roundup and all the things like we all are like, oh, it does what it's supposed to do, but what else does it do? So we asked Leah in the neighborhood, like, what can we do to like kill these annoying little weeds that are coming up in the cracks and the bricks and the sidewalks and get rid of them, but not taking on that toxicity. And so we tell them that recipe, Leah, because I I think that's like one that I always like, okay, remind me, what are the proportions? But it worked perfectly and it was safe. So
1: yeah, um, especially for pathways. I like that you brought that up. I don't like putting this next to the plants that we're cultivating because what we're essentially doing with this recipe is making the dirt uninhabitable. We're making it so that those roots can shrivel up and go away. So this recipe is a gallon of vinegar, just white vinegar, usually 5% dilution, uh, half a cup of Epsom salts, and a quarter of a cup of dish soap, preferably some that doesn't have any residual dyes or fragrances. But Mixing that up, obviously adding the soap last after the salt has had some time to dissolve so you don't get just bubbles, and spraying that on during the times that are the worst for the plants, so the hottest times of day, so that they have to absorb this acid that will then help them shrivel up and and die out. It's
2: like a safe, environmentally friendly poison.
1: Yes, but we we call it it. weed-begone, and weed is one of those words— well, especially when you're not in this state that can mean what you want it to mean. Yeah. <laughs> but weed to me is an arbitrary term. It's it's something that you don't want growing where it's growing. There's more specific terms like noxious or invasive where we have a list of those with the uh, NRCS or the conservation district. And the plants database on the government website that you can look up that are specific to your area. But some of these other things like dandelions can be used. If you eat enough of those, they're not going to produce all these extra seeds and plant new plants.
0: I saw that in Iceland. It was really interesting because the sheep is a big part of their agricultural history. And basically there, they, they never had lupine, and now there are fields and fields of lupine. And it's, it's beautiful, and it makes outstanding wedding photos, but like it's also a problem for their sheep industry because they make lots of sweaters and nice wool clothing. And so it's it's interesting that sometimes what's pretty isn't always the, the best plan.
2: Feeding people is such a an intimate thing. You know, you're a part of their day in that small way. How have you connected with people over the last year and just really become a solid part of the community?
1: A lot of what I like to do is go out and meet especially like the producers and ranchers going out and seeing what they do and how they do it so that I can treat their ingredients with respect. And that's where that relationship ultimately starts with the community, because then those producers and ranchers are telling other people about how I'm processing their ingredients and saying, hey, you should go try her food. And so that's that first initial step that then takes me to places like The Eat Wyoming market, where I have ready made prepared foods for people to pick up when they grab their veggie box. So they can try some of my food and see if they want that as part of their veggie box subscription. But some of the other big events that I like to do are the Funky Junk District. I was just at the one in May, which was a great event. It went really well. It's one of our best events. And getting to make even just a small snack all the way up to a whole meal and have people go, oh my gosh, that was so good or having people walk by and say, someone was carrying this thing and it looked amazing. Is it you that sells that? It's really fun to see like people start to share that with those around them, even if they don't realize they're doing that.
2: And when you're using colorful local ingredients too, it probably does make it quite artful and you get to have fun with playing with the way something looks, which has become a pretty big part of the food industry. Where do you draw the most inspiration
1: from? I would say the most inspiration just comes from what is actually available right now. Our Our bodies tell us what nutrients we need depending on the climate around us. And so something that's just becoming available that is that freshest, newest thing is what we're called to. And so taking that and knowing, say, a tomato, especially a cherry tomato, has that pop of acidity, but that little bit of sweetness, and then finding something else like the cucumber that has a bitterness but a freshness to help balance those things out. And then that's your red and green that really pulls in the complementary colors from that art side that we kind of forget about as chefs sometimes.
2: Well, I'm wondering how this harsh winter will play out as far as food availability. Any
1: forecasts? There will and has already shown lasting damage to things like perennial trees or other spaces in that way and some of that includes our pollinators and other bugs that are helpful to those environments. So I've noticed even in my garden I have a big mint bucket and I think I have less than a third of what I usually have after a season like this.
2: And so that'll change the menu up a little bit but we that's part of the challenge and what you're doing is really trying to make sure that you're getting local and thinking Wyoming.
1: It feels nice to kind of bring us back to what we used to be a little bit, bring our attention back to, you know, we do have the convenience of the modern day, but there's so much more that we could be enjoying if we just went back to those simple foods.
0: If you ever get a chance, um, Leah's gone on a lot of the hikes that we did on Casper Mountain and she always, um, she would get up and go with us and then she would teach us about all of the plants there and like I always just assumed those were raspberry plants along the trail and like, oh, a thimbleberry. And now I've taught a lot of other people about a thimbleberry and it's like this tradition like, oh, they're almost here and then you get to share them with other people that are hiking with you and just, she's always been a resource that drops into the neighborhood when there's any kind of question of like, how do I get rid of these these weeds in my sidewalk anything like that or what is this or what is that that's what we've tried to do there is just to provide resources experts within the community because people like there's just so much information out there and so much bad information that when you can have a person like Leah or some of the other people we've interviewed that can just be like oh that's a reliable source good information let's make the best choice.
1: Well and I appreciate that Elliot it's it's nice to know lot about this, but there are still some things that stump me. And I'm I'm very upfront with people about, you know, I'm not sure, but these are the resources that I'm going to reach out to to figure that out. And oftentimes taking a picture of something doesn't get the whole literal picture. You don't get to see the climate. You don't get to see the soil or what's growing nearby. And Elliot will tell you firsthand that I am constantly going, okay, I can see this, but can I get a better picture of the leaf? Or is there something nearby that grows that looks just like it? Or what does the stem look like? I need to know more about it. And so seeing how that system works just from a small plant is how I apply the food system across Wyoming. It's you're looking at all these details and how they add up and become this whole picture of how we should be eating here and now.
0: And she makes you part of the process. So it becomes very holistic. I mean, it's almost like an adult scavenger hunt in the end. (laughs) You're like, let's figure this out together. I need more information. So asking good questions over and over again until you get the best possible answer and Sometimes you don't have the answer, but that might be the answer.
2: Where's your favorite? Well, maybe you don't want to answer this. Where's your favorite spot to forage? You can cut this Um, if it's
1: a secret. uh, I don't have a secret spot to forage, but... The way I like to do, especially classes, is go to a place that has a large variety of things or go to a couple of places. And they should be easy to access because not everyone can do a full five-mile hike like the Bridal Trail. It's possible, but that one side is pretty steep, and if you've hiked that, you know. That doesn't really lend itself to stopping and staring at a plant really close up. I like to go to Rotary Park but stay on the main loop down by the waterfall. There's can't even think of how many climates, microclimates that there are. And I think there are hundreds of plants that I can teach people about within a couple of hours, poisonous and edible. So it's really nice to have a place that you can see more because now you're committing those things to memory. You've physically seen them. The ones that are safe to touch, we can touch, we can smell. It's a full sensory experience. And so finding places like Rotary Park or even Morad Park, which is on a whole different elevation in a different climate in and of itself. It has hundreds of different plants compared to the other park. So showing people that the things they walk by every day are already.
2: This
0: has been Report to Wyoming, presented in the public interest by Town Square Media.